Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I took this trip to Poland, and I just wanted to tell you guys about it. It's, uh, it, it was an amazing experience, and it was a place that I, I actively d- didn't want to go to. Um, and so, and then having went, I, I, I really recommend it. So, so, so there you go. That's, that's it in a nutshell right there. But um, I, I, I'll just, just talk about just different stops on the trip, and I'm still very much processing it. I, I talked with someone yesterday. I sort of gave just a, a brief kind of 10-minute overview uh, on the trip, and I, I sort of was you know, kind of very hesitant to, to give the, the talk at all because I saw in the, in, the, in, in the crowd of people that was there, there was a, someone who had been in Auschwitz. So, you know, sort of like me talking about my, my trip to Auschwitz, you know what I mean? To someone who was in Auschwitz, you know, seemed to me dumb and wrong. And um, so uh, there are people who, you know, definitely have very uh, active and great reasons to, not to want to go, and and um, by the way, he leads trips to Auschwitz. So, but then you have people who who you know want to go. They actually actively want to go. It's it's strange. I, I was telling my son something that I actually learned from Rabbi Cordozo, and and I think this is just an important point for everyone to know in general. It will sound very basic, but believe me, this is a big idea. You, you know what the twelve tribes of Israel represent? 12 different personalities because people have different personalities and again that that sounds like such a basic idea but you will get along with people much better you will have more tolerance and more friends and more love for people in general if you understand that people have different personalities you know what I mean in other words a lot of people like get excited about something and then they talk to you about it and you're not excited about it and now they don't like you because why aren't you excited as they are excited you know why because they have a different personality <laughs> that's why <laughs> they're not trying to anger you they're not trying to anger you they just see things differently and if you interact with people knowing that you'll just have a lot more tolerance and, and, and love okay so anyway so I went, and the, the reason, the main reason why I went was because my son was going. He went, it was a high school trip, there were about 20 boys and about five dads and, and three uh, rabbis overseeing the trip who were each amazing in their own right. One of them is, was, uh, Rabbi Skates is like a Reb Shlomo Chassid and, and a, an amazing guitarist, and so there was music every stop of the way. A lot of singing, a lot of music every stop of the way. Um, which, which added such a huge dimension. Um, if, if I had led a trip, I don't know if there would have been as much music as there was on this trip. So it just, it, the music was so essential for this. If you, if, you, if you pick a trip and you end up going yourself, if you haven't been, ask if there's going to be someone with a guitar on the trip, because I'm telling you, it, it, will, it's a, it, it will make the trip. Um, Rabbi Safran, the head of school at Eula, and Rabbi Eli Marcus, who's... Uh, at Reishis, it's a big uh, yeshiva where a lot of uh, kids spend their gap year between high school and college. And he was sort of giving the historical overviews and, and inspirational uh, speeches as well. He was also wonderful. So everyone was great. Um, anyway, here's how I would describe the trip just in a, in a nutshell, the, the itinerary of the trip. And we were there for about a week. Um, we went, this is almost exclusively the entire trip. You ready? 
We went from death camps to cemeteries, to death camps to cemeteries, death camps to cemeteries. And, you know, from the outside, from a sort of more kind of like superficial level, you, you might see a theme that I just mentioned, <laughs> namely death. And yet what was so surprising about it is that the, the cemeteries that we went to weren't just normal cemeteries, uh, or one or two were, but, but they were kfarim, um, grave sites of tzaddikim, of our most holy righteous people, some of the most holy righteous people in, in all of history. And, and the Talmud says that, that Sadiqim, these holy people, are more alive after they're dead than they are even when they're alive. So, so this is an incredible thing. In other words, we were going from death camps to, to places of oxygen. Like, you, you, even though the optics of it were that you were surrounded by tombstones, you were going from a death camp to a place where you could breathe again. And you felt so connected to these these unbelievable souls. Now, among the uh, Sadiqim that we were able to, to visit were, and in no, no special order, um, we went to the Chedusha Rim, the Sva Semis, Reb Tzadak HaKohen, Reb Leibola Eger, the Choza of Lublin, the Kutzka Rebbe, the Marshal, um, the Magali Amukos, the Ramah, Reb David of Lelev, the Noam Elimelech, um, just, and I'm sure I'm leaving out people, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Mizels, who I'll tell you about later, Godwin. So just, wow, it was just like all the, or many, many of the tzaddikim whose asfarim I've been learning over the last few decades, if you recognize any of those names, these are names that I mention in these talks all of the time, all of the time. Um, we were able to, to, to actually go to where they were buried. So, so it was really, it was really exciting. That was exciting. Um, the death camps that we went to, we went to Treblinka, we went to Auschwitz, we went to Medanik, um, we went to uh, Helmino. I'll tell you about all these places, uh, and all in different, uh, uh, different um, shapes of either destruction or intactness. So that, that in itself is an interesting story, uh, just why, why that would be the case. But, so that, that's kind of like an overview right there. Um, and uh, I'll just kind of just tell you just different experiences. I didn't really want to make too much of an outline. I just wanted it to kind of flow. And so I'll just, just tell you different memories of the trip. So, but they'll all sort of like be in with, within what I just discussed. So... Um, I'll tell you a story. We, we were discussing it on Shabbos. It's just a kind of a fun, cool story. So, so Reb, Rabbi Mizels, Eliyahu Mizels, was, was a very, very great rabbi in, in Lodz. Lodz was um, kind of the richest of the Polish cities. Like if you see it spelled in English, it's L-O-D-Z. But D-Z is pronounced J in English. <laughs> so... Anyway, and we spent Shabbos in Lodz. Um, but so Rabbi Mizels was the rabbi there. He was this revered, beloved rabbi for decades, for decades and decades. And it says this on his tombstone itself. This was a current event when it happened. How great was, was Rabbi Mizels? So there was a, because uh, Lodz was a richer place, 
you had a, a separate kind of hall where they'd give the funeral and things like that, like the the hespedum, the eulogies, and then they'd have the burial ground. That's not so unusual to have in America, but in Poland it was a little spare. They didn't necessarily have that extra building. It was kind of like you just kind of buried the person. So in we went inside this this building, and um, and it's famous because there was a plague that broke out in the city. People were dying, you know, and and. And Rabbi Maizels took his, his cane, his walking stick, and he said whatever he was saying, and he hit, you know, one wall, and then he hit a second wall with it, and then he hit a third wall, and the plague stopped. And this is recorded on his tombstone. And this was a current event as it was happening. So his, his greatness, he... he so here, here's another story. I, I love this story. There was an incident, I don't know any of the details, but you, you don't need to know the details. Someone died and had money, and then when they went to, you know, when the, you know, the children or whatever it was went to look over, you know, the, the estate, they see the money is gone. And everybody knows this one particular person took it. And the person who took it says, no, I didn't take it. So what are we going to do? We have to get the money back, right? Everybody knows he's the, the thief. So Rabbi Maizel says, okay, you said you didn't take it. It's okay, fine. What we need you to do is you have to come to me tomorrow and you have to, you have to make a vow. You have to swear that you didn't take it. So it's like, okay. So what he did was Rabbi Maizel arranged to have a, a, a member of the community who was alive. He laid him out on a table and he covered him with a sheet. Now he was alive. <laughs> And when the man came, he told him that, you know, that this was the dead person. <laughs> and he said, I want you to take his hand, take his hand and swear that you didn't take the money. And he told the person before the man showed up, he says, when he takes your hand, grab his hand <laughs> and don't let go. <laughs> and so, so he takes his hand and then the man, you know, under the sheet, grabs his hand and the man screams, I took the money! I took the money! <laughs> so, amazing, amazing, you know, these, these are, you know, how, how have we survived as a people for thousands of years? Because we had people like these shepherding the communities. What is you know? Rabbi, Rabbi Maizel's. Myzels with that M like like man. So I tell you another story. He he was um, there was uh, there was a a, a man. Uh, let's see. I, I have a picture of his uh, gravesite here. It's incredible. It's like the the, the gravesite is like a palace. You've you've never seen anything like this. Um, and he ran uh, one of the. He ran one of the, uh, the largest textile firms in all of Europe. He was one of the richest Jews in the world, or some people say even in his time, he was the richest Jew in the world. This oh, is wow. uh, a picture of where he's buried. Like a mausoleum. It's, yeah, it's, it's like a palace, but, but his, his actual, where he actually lived was a palace, and I went to it. They, they're, they're redoing it. It's like a historical site. So I wasn't able to go in at the time, but it's like um, 
The only thing that I can compare to, if you know the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, it's kind of looking like that. And it goes, I mean, it is a literally a palace. It's literally a palace. Anyway, he was a tremendous Baltzadaka also. He gave tons of charity. So Rabbi Meisels came, and it was a, uh, you know, remember, Rabbi Meisels was really the, the man of the entire city. He was, you know, revered. And this is at a time where, where people really had the proper respect for, 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 the, for the community rabbi and things like this. And so he, he, comes, to, uh, he comes to pay him a visit. And from the window, uh, from the window, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing his uh, name properly. Um, Mr. Poznansky. You can look it up. Mr. Poznansky uh, sees him. Uh, the rabbi, uh, Rabbi Maisels is coming. So he runs from his house in order to greet him properly. He runs outside. Now, this is in Poland, and it's cold. It's cold in Poland, right? So he runs out, and he's just wearing a shirt. He doesn't even have time to put on a jacket. He wants to make sure that he ran to greet him properly. And Rabbi Maisels is standing there, and he's, you know, got his, you know, he's dressed warmly for the, for the weather. And, and he says, Rabbi, you know, what, what do I owe the honor that you should, uh, that you should come to my home to, to pay me a visit like this? And he goes, well, you know, I just, just wanted to stop by, say hello, see how you're doing. And, you know, the man is, is, is like very cold. <laughs> He's like, you know, like shivering a little bit, but he doesn't want to be rude and say, you know, like, so new, why are you here? You know, so he says, he says, you know, why don't, why don't we come inside? Well, come, come inside, let me give you a cup of tea or whatever it is. And the rabbi says, no, 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 I just, I don't want to stay long. So, what else is going on with you? <laughs> how, how, how's the learning going? Are you, he says, well, you know, learning some, you know, trying to keep up. And, and the man is freezing. And, 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 and at, at a certain point, he just, he couldn't take it anymore. He says, Rabbi, I'm freezing. I have to go inside. And he said, that's what I wanted to discuss with you. He says, all the widows and the children who are freezing right now, and they don't have any coal to heat them. And this is how they feel like, the way you feel like, this is how they feel like around the clock right now. And he goes, now let's go inside and we can discuss it. I mean, these are, these are the great leaders, you know? And uh, Rabbi Chaim Grodzinski, who was the one who gave smicha, the rabbinic ordination, to the Chovetz Chaim. So if you want to know the greatness of, of who he was, okay? When he was still younger, he had published, he was considered like the greatest rabbi in, in Lithuania or maybe the world, you know, in terms of his Torah knowledge. This is before World War II. He, he came to Rabbi Maizel's, the same rabbi, for a, um, you know, a haskama, a, 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 a letter, bless you, of recommendation for his, for his book, for Rabbi Chaim's book. And, and he said to Rabbi Maizel's, who was much older than him at the time, he said, he said, you know, I would like to see your Sefer. Like, I would like to see your Torah book. And Rabbi Meisels never wrote a Torah book, even though he had, you know, you know, mountains and mountains of, of Torah, you know, knowledge. But he went to the other room and he took out the, 
the, the, the tzedakah ledger, the charity ledger of the city, of all the money he collected, and he handed it to him and he said, this is my safer. You know, all the chesed, that, all the kindness that I've, you know, you know, presided over in terms of making sure that the city survived and the poor of the city survived. So that's, that's, um, that, that's, that's, that's one story. And, and so this is, again, just giving you a, a sense of, you know, you're going to, a, you're going to a, a cemetery, but then you're hearing stories like this, like by the grave of the, of the person, and you feel alive. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, cemeteries have different names in, in Torah. One of the names of a cemetery in Torah is Beis HaChayim, which means a place of life. And again, it's, this, it's, it's all of these ideas that we were saying, that, 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 that tzaddikim are even more alive after they leave this world. Okay, so I told you about a tzaddik, so now let me tell you uh, about a death camp. Maybe we'll go back and forth. Maybe that's how we'll organize this talk. So one of the places that we went to was uh, this place called uh, Medonic. Medonic had such a horrible reputation as um, it was technically a work camp, See, there were death camps and there were work camps. From what I understood from the, the trips, a death camp was literally, like Treblinka was a death camp. Literally, you got off the train and then they sent you to the gas chamber. You know, there was no, um, there was no like, working. There was no slave labor or anything like that. They, they sent you there to exterminate you. Uh, so while we're on the subject of Treblinka, so Treblinka is in the middle of a forest in, in Poland. It's literally in the middle of nowhere, and that's by design. The Nazis wanted to put it in the middle of absolutely nowhere so that people wouldn't find it. And, but what's so alarming about it is that it's gone. See, you, you hear stories, if you even know a little bit about... Um, the end of World War II, as the Russians were gaining on the, on the Nazis and the Americans also were gaining on them, the Nazis were trying to get rid of all the evidence of what they had done. And in some of the biggest death camps that they had, they were able to actually get rid of all of it. Sobibor was a giant death camp. You know, these are, these are names that are in their own way as big as Auschwitz. Maybe Auschwitz has a slightly larger number of people that died there, but Belzac and Sobibor were death camps that rivaled Auschwitz. And it gives you just, it's another one of endless hum, humbling experiences that we don't even know the names of these places. And that, that's how big the amount, the, 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 the warehouses, the endless warehouses of dead bodies were that some of the biggest extermination camps we don't even know the names of. But we do know the names of them. It's just that they're not as well known. But how can you not know the name, right? I mean, but that just gives you an idea of the enormity of it. That's, that's what I'm trying to tell you. So, so some of the places the Nazis were actually successful, meaning to say... Like Treblinka, it's gone. Treblinka is gone. You walk into a forest, and this forest, approximately a million people were killed in this place. And it's just trees. Camp's not there? That's what I'm telling you. Nothing's there. Nothing is there. And after, so how do they know, then how do they know, like, was, did it really happen there? 
there were survivors, and the survivors told the authorities, and everywhere the, the authorities dug, they found bodies. Everywhere. So, you know, so they understand, yeah, this, is, this was Treblinka. Um, there are a couple of stone monuments, and there's like one large stone monument, and one of the things that was interesting, was nice, was in the different places that we went, there were, there were first of all, there were tours from, uh, you, you, you saw a lot of poles, so that's, that's nice that that's part of their, I guess, education, that they're visiting these places. I saw one group of uh, people from Asia, which was interesting. There are um, groups of Israeli soldiers. We ran into groups of Israeli soldiers in, in Auschwitz and at Treblinka, and that's, that's part of their, their training. Um, at some point they go, I guess, which is, which is really cool to see them with, you know, Israeli flags and, you know, at these places. Because here, here, here's just another perspective that, I, that I just helped me just begin to a little bit wrap my mind around what actually happened, what the Nazis did. See, imagine there's a war going on. There was a war going on, right? So you have the Nazi, the German army fighting the Soviet, the Russian army. The German army fighting the Russian army. The German army fighting the United States army. Fighting the English army. Well, the German army waged a war on the Jewish people with equal ferocity as all the other armies of the world, only there was no army. It was just women and children and unarmed men. So just people sitting ducks, like you had the same ferocity of fighting world-class armies, only it was a completely defenseless civilian population. Do, do you understand the level of mismatch? How you've got this... Okay. Anyway. I, I don't know if I'm communicating, but... But, like, there's an English phrase like um, shooting fish in a barrel. And th- that's, that's what it was. So... How do they deal with it? How can they deal with it? So, so, so yeah, so at Treblinka they had something that was kind of very interesting. They had, like, basically knee-high, maybe a little bit larger... Stones and something like 16,000 stones um, with names of towns and cities on them of people who had been ingathered to Treblinka, to die at Treblinka. And from a design standpoint, so you could walk along this large field and you see all these different things with names of things that you can't even read because they're in like Polish or whatever it is. And according to the size of the town, that's how big the rock is. But they're all relatively small. But the artist who kind of like conceived of this, it was very effective because they only picked rocks that were incredibly sharp and jagged and irregularly shaped. And so you look at it and it's very unsettling to the eye as you walk toward it. And it's what it... What it said to me as someone who is, you know, the experiential aspect of it is that lives were torn and ripped from all of these places. You know, it wasn't just a marker. It was like 
it was with violence. It was with violence and, and, and terrible pain and suffering. Um, one story that we heard over and over again, and you have to understand that there's a principle that if you find out that some, one thing exists, that one thing that exists that you didn't know about, you have to, if you want to be a little bit sophisticated, understand that there are many more examples of that that you'll never hear about. But just now that you've become aware of it, then you have to know, okay, it's bigger than that. Okay? So, so there's so many stories of tzaddikim who were, when they found out that they were going to die, said, okay, then basically right now we're Yitzchak. We're Yitzchak Avinu on the Akedah. Let's die Let's give our lives up to God in the best, most beautiful way possible. Because, you know, they, they looked around and they said, we're not getting out of here. We're going to die. Let's do it besimcha. Let's do it, like, with, with, with happiness. Let's, like, give our lives back to God with happiness. You hear this story over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's just the... Maybe the, the best example of this, or one example that we heard at Treblinka was was that this, one of the sons, I believe his name was Reb Meir uh, Alter, uh, when, when he got out in Treblinka and was told that what, what, what was about to happen, and he was the, the, one of the sons of the Sasemis, he heard the news and he started running as fast as he could to the gas chamber to give up his life in, in, the, in what he perceived in that moment to be the most... Like we, we have this concept called z- doing something bizrizis. Like you don't just do a mitzvah. If there's a mitzvah on the table to do, you do it quickly. Yeah. Right? So he understood at that moment that the mitzvah of the moment was giving up your life, Al-Kiddush Hashem. So he literally started running toward the gas chamber. But, but many, 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 many stories like All right, I'll tell you, I'll tell you uh, about going to the grave of the Kutzker Rebbe. So, so this is the reason why I went on the trip to begin with, because um, I, I've told you another time, but I'll just tell you again, um, is that my, my wife is a descendant of the, of the, of the Kutzker Rebbe. And, um, and uh, my son... Is, uh, is, is named Menachem Mendel after him. So he's actually, you know, so, and, and in fact, we gave him a, the whole mita, the whole quality of, of Kutsk is truth, running after truth, and being uncompromising, relentless, really, about truth. So we, we wanted to give him a, an English name alongside Menachem Mendel. So actually, we, we discussed calling him Truth, giving that as his English name. But then we thought that was a little too Hollywood. <laughs> and also, who wants to go through life with the name Truth? It's a little heavy. <laughs> so, so we actually, but we, so we called him Truman. So his name is Truman, but the reason why we called him Truman was because it has the word true in it. Right? We figured that would be the, the best way to get the word truth in there. So, so anyway, um, so the, the idea of being able to go to the Kutzker Rebbe's Kever gravesite with my son who's named after him, right? And that that would be an awesome experience. And like I said, that's why I went. I, I knew that I was going to also have to go to the death camps, but it was worth it to me to do that part 
which I'm, in the end, I'm glad I did, just to be able to do this part with my son. So, so the, there was snow on the ground at this point, and there's, there's, there's the ohel. So what's an ohel? An ohel is that for special tzaddikim, they build a house around the grave. Okay, and in some, some ohels you can go inside them, some you can't. Some you can if you have the key, but getting the key to these places is like, that's like an art form in itself. Because there's certain people in the community who have the key and you have to know who they are. And then, you know, there's a whole kind of like key mafia, you know. <laughs> so you got you to gotta know because it's a drag if you get to the place and it's locked. You know, especially if you flew to Poland to go to the place and it's locked, you know. So anyway... Um, yeah, so there was a, a fence around it. But in a lot of these places, all the grave sites were desecrated. Like, basically, everything Jewish was desecrated in all of Poland by the Nazis. Everything. Um, but, but some places, they, somehow they knew that it was a big rabbi, or maybe it was just the hand of God, or different things where they left, or they were afraid that they would be cursed, whatever it is, because... There was superstition. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the graves of the biggest are still, for the most part, intact. Yeah. But a lot of times, everyone who's buried around them is gone. Right? So that was the case with the Kutzker Rebbe. Like, he and his family are in that spot with the Ohel, with the building. But everyone else is, is not there. Is not there. Where their bones are there, but not the markers, and I'll I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. So, I had a I had the sort of like they gave me the privilege of you know at each one of these places there was a different speaker, so I got to speak by Kutsk. So I said what I said by Kutsk. I tried to record it, but it didn't record, and everyone was freezing cold. It was like really cold, so I didn't want to say, hey, you know, just can you just wait here while we say, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you're here eight times before we get the, <laughs> we get the, the thing to work properly, you know. So, you know, I was like, okay, it wasn't meant to be, let's just give the talk. So it did get recorded, but, um, you know, I gave sort of just a, whatever, just gave a few words. And then something happened. Okay, it's not going to sound like a big deal, but it was just sort of like, I, I can't really explain what happened. Like I said, there was snow on the ground, it was even a little bit slippery. And... The Ohel was probably maybe from one side to the other side, I don't know, maybe 10 yards, kind of. I started running as fast as I could around the Ohel. And I just had it in my mind just like to do hakafas, like on Simcha's Torah, you know, where you... And I started running as fast as I could, and it was on the snow, so I had to like stop myself from slipping or falling. But I wasn't even thinking. And then someone, like the, the head of the school, told me, after, like he said to one of the boys, like, one of the boys asked him, what's he doing? <laughs> like, you know, like it was like a little bit sort of shocking what was taking place. And the head of school said, I don't know, but let's go. And then they started running with me, including the person with the guitar who was playing the guitar as we were running, making circles around the OL. And then I got back on the bus 
and I just kind of sat down, and then, you know, no one knew what was happening. Like, like, and the 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 head of school, I guess, said, "That was incredible. Like, that was that was amazing. What, what did you, what were you what were you doing?" And I'm telling you, I, I had forgotten that I had done it. Hmm. It was the strangest thing. I was like, oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, I was doing hakafas. I had forgotten what I had done. It was not, not that I did anything so great, but it was, it was an interesting experience. So I'll tell you, okay, so that's, that's part one. I'll tell you part two. Part two is, I mentioned it a few weeks ago, um, I think I called that talk three, wor- three stories from this world and the next. That after I decided to go on this Poland trip, like a few days afterwards, I found an entry in a book about a rabbi who I had never heard of, who at the, the last line of the entry said, is buried next to the Kutzker Rebbe. Hmm. Now that's, to me, that was like phenomenal. I felt like that was like the next world reaching out to, to this world. You know, saying, like the way I experienced this was like, you're coming to see the Katsukarebi, come see me also. Mm -hmm. Now, listen to this. His grave is gone. It's not there anymore? It's not there. It was desecrated, it's gone. And when I got there, I was very excited. His name is Reb Tzvi Hirsch of Tomashev. I was very excited to be able to visit him too. And it was not there, and it was disappointing to me because I was like oh it's not there and then I realized that that reading that was all the more meaningful now because he knows you'll never know I even existed and you're coming to me anyway come see me too you won't know otherwise right that that was something um we went to the the this, the uh, the the kever the 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 ohel of the Noam Elimelech. You know, people fly once a year. A lot of people, a lot of people, they fly to Poland, get off the plane, drive to the gravesite of the Noam Elimelech, then drive back to the airport, and then drive to wherever they live around the world. Like they're only going for that one reason to go there. That's probably. I would guess the most visited grave in, in all of Poland, right? So it's, it's a big deal. The Nomadli Melech is a big deal. Why? Because historically speaking, Hasidus was mostly in like, the, well, the Baal Shem Tov was in the Carpathian Mountains, okay? So, and then it, it goes more to Russia. But the Nomadli Melech is the one who brought Hasidus to Poland. Now remember, at the time of the Holocaust, there were about three million people. Three million Jews, rather. So it was really like the headquarters of Hasidus, the, the, you know, and, and the Noam Elimelech is the one who brought Hasidus really to, to Poland. And among his students are the, 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 uh, the Chos of Lublin. And um, I mean, there's so many, there's so many. But, but, but anyway, the Robschitzer and the, yeah, the Riminover, I mean, there are, and then the students of those students, you know, the, 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 anyway, it's, it's all the all-stars, all the all-stars of, like, of, 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 uh, of Polish Hasidic uh, Rebbes all come from the Noam Elimelech. See, now, one thing, just as a historical note, one thing that you have to understand is 
When you think of Poland, like a lot of people will tell you, they use this phrase, they say, I don't want to go there, it's an open graveyard. And it really, it really is an open graveyard. And I'll tell you details about that. When, like, for instance, when we went to Chelmino, Chelmino um, is where the Nazis were basically kind of just figuring out how to do the Holocaust. And the, the crudest, I mean, it was all crude, but the most primitive form of mass extermination was they would, they would round up the Jews, they would shove them in the back of small trucks, not big trucks, small trucks, then they would lock them in, and they would put the, a hose into the back of the truck with carbon monoxide, and it would take about 20 minutes for the people to, to die in the back of the truck. Now, in, And then they would have to take the bodies and to a field, and we went to this field, and then they would burn the bodies and about 250,000 people approximately died that way. Mm-hmm. And, and then they figured out, well, you know something, we've got to figure out how to dispose of these bodies more efficiently. The idea of like gassing them and then having to transport the bodies and then having to burn them. And it got to the point where when we were in Auschwitz, and I saw this with my own eyes, you walk into the gas chamber, then there were five gas chambers, and they're very large spaces. That's another thing. You get an idea like, you know, people try to play mind games, not, not to entertain themselves, but to, how can I conceive of six million people? Everyone's done this. You know, they even had a movie not so long ago, Paper Clips, where, you know, they tried to gather six million paper clips. Just try to give people some way to, to, to understand what that number is. And it's very hard to do, or maybe it's impossible to do, but when you see, like in Auschwitz, how large the gas chamber is, you realize in one shot how many people they were killing. They were killing huge numbers of people at a shot. And then you walk over into literally the next room, and there are ovens. But not like, okay, then we'd put them on a wheelbarrow, and we'd wheel them to the building with the ovens. The next room, one wall over, one wall separated where they were being killed to where the bodies were being burned. In other words, the efficiency of it. And they made Jews work work that, that, that transport of putting the bodies into the ovens. And sometimes in order to fit them into the ovens, they had to break their bones in order to fit them into the ovens. And then you had piles of ashes, right? Because that, okay, that got rid of the bodies, but it didn't get rid of the ashes. Piles and piles of ashes. So in Medonic, now Medonic is like, there's this, you know, when you think of like Soviet architecture, you know, you think of like concrete, like, you know, I guess... I don't know. It's just like they're, they're big on concrete. So there's like, you go to Medonic and there's like, okay, the camp is the most intact of all the camps that we went to. It really looks like a camp, which in itself is chilling because, you know, all the things that you see usually are in black and white. And then you walk in and you see in living color, it's the stuff of nightmares. It's like your nightmare came to life. And you see these wooden guard towers where, you know, where the Nazi guards would shoot anyone who, you know, did the wrong thing or who didn't do anything. 
you see it's like there's like this like a tall monster like these these wooden structures anyway so there's this big monument like big concrete with steps leading up to it with a big dome over it and you, you say well okay well this must be very meaningful i mean it's like this very big monument what is it and you walk to the top of it and then there's like this mound and it's uh, open in open air. So it's been exposed to all the snow, rain, elements, wind, everything like that. So it looks like a hard clod of earth, a big mound. And then you realize, no, 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 that's people. It's people. Those are the ashes. They wanted to preserve a pile of ashes. Thousands in a small little circle, thousands of people are this, in, in, are this mound. And one of the things that really got to me right outside of that, they had something called the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this properly, the Erendfest, something like that. And it was in this place, and it was like around 1942, I think, where they killed the most people in the shortest period of time. And what is that phrase that I just told you? That was the code name that the Nazis used for the quickest, fastest, massive, most massive killing. You know what? You know what they called it? The Harvest Festival. That was that was the nickname, the code name that they gave it. It was the Harvest Festival. Now I'll tell you something about Madonic. Madonic had was a work camp. It wasn't even a death camp but at this quote-unquote work camp where no work needed to be done. They just made up labor to torture people. Approximately 250,000 people died and they had gas chambers and crematorium there as well. And that was a work camp. It was considered such a hellish place that people asked to be transferred to Auschwitz from Madonna. Can you imagine what Madonic was? Wow. Now, Madonic, like I said, of all the places that we went to, is the most preserved. Like, you walk in and you go, okay, well, that's what the pictures I've seen, this is, this is what a Nazi death camp looked like. And it was, a, it was like, a, like the main part of it was a large rectangle, okay? Now, you have to picture this. This is wild. This is in um, Lublin, Okay? Surrounding across the street. Now I'm not talking about like I'm talking about across the street. Like imagine just across the street. Like that that distance, okay? Literally across the street. There's a street, there's a sidewalk, there's a street. I'm talking about the other side of the street. Of this rectangle, three sides of the rectangle have apartment buildings. Across the street, where you're looking out over this death camp. Now, they weren't there at the time, but what does it say about the people who are living there now? And, and unlike in other places, like I, I told you, like in Treblinka, they deliberately put it in the middle of nowhere in the, in, in, in the forest. In Lublin, they marched them all through the cities. All the, all the people who were going to Madonic were marched through the city of Lublin. Everybody knew, everybody knew, everybody knew. And, and they just came up with a new piece of Holocaust research. This was in the New York Times. They were talking about 
How many sites of killing have been cataloged at this point? And they have cataloged, you ready for this? Sites of killing for the six million. They've cataloged this. They, they have this. You ready? 42,000 different places. Four, this is in the New York Times. 42,000 different places where the killing took place. Now, we left, we, we spent Shabbos and Lodge, and then our flight, we had to be at the airport at something like four in the morning, so there was like an all-nighter, and we were going to different places. And uh, one of the places that we went was, uh, this was, this was intense. It's like the, 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 the Polish um, dr- guide and driver couldn't find it. Um, really, I'm talking about now in the middle of nowhere. This was at about maybe 1 a.m. at this point. Maybe it was 2 a.m. It's like the middle of the night. It was dark. It was foggy. And he's looking for about 45 minutes. He can't find where, the, where we're going. And we're really, honestly, I'll, I took, I'll show you a picture. We're really, literally in the middle of nowhere. And he kept on saying that his contact is, is he has two contacts, and they're both too drunk right now to give him any directions. <laughs> so it's sort of like, okay, are we going to just skip it, or what's, what's going on? And finally he goes, ah, I found it, I found it. All right, so you get out, and, you know, it's foggy. It's literally in the middle of the night. And the, our leader said, okay, we're going to have to walk for a while. You're walking, you're walking, you're walking. It's just, there's nothing there. I mean, no houses, no buildings, no roads. It's just a farm. And you're walking, walking, walking. And then all of a sudden you get more into a little bit of a foresty area. And then in the middle of nowhere, a large tombstone. One tombstone. One tombstone. So what's the story? The story is that um, the Polish farmer was getting older, and he went to one of the Jewish community centers, and he says, I can't die with this information. He says, I have to tell someone. He said, during World War II... Nazis came up and they said to me, uh, we killed um, some six partisans. Who were the partisans? They were soldiers fighting against, they were sort of like a guerrilla army who were living in the forests <laughs> trying to fight the Nazis. We killed six partisans and he, they, they told the, this Polish farmer, dig a ditch, dig a, dig a grave for them and if you look, if you look, we'll kill you. So, okay, so he digs the ditch, and as they're throwing in the bodies, at the risk of his life, he, he turned around and he, he took a look, and he saw that they were six children. And we don't know anything about them. We don't know anything about them. Maybe they... 
a lot of kids, not, not, I don't know, a lot, but some kids were able to jump off the trains. You know, they were cattle cars, and they, they, but they had like a little window, some of them did, with barbed wire on the outside of it. But some, some people were able to slip through. So what happens? Let's say you were able to actually escape one of those trains going to Auschwitz, and you were actually able to get out. You're in the middle of nowhere. You don't have your parents. You don't have anything. You don't have any food. What, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? So they thought maybe that's where they had come from. Uh, another place we went to, Tarnow. Tarnow is, uh, I can only describe it as a wealthy Polish suburb. And I say that because as we were walking down this path into the middle of the forest, we walked by modern-looking houses with two cars in their garage. So for Poland, I'm, I'm thinking that that's, you know, a wealthy suburb. We get to this place, and they separated the parents from the children, and they took the children, and they smashed their heads against trees. And I'm looking with my son, and we're looking at the trees. Which ones of these trees do you think had heads smashed against them? I said to my son when we walked into Auschwitz, you're looking at the face of the devil. These buildings, like... And the idea that there's evil that you can touch. It's like a lot of times when we talk about evil, it's an idea. But the, 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 the experience of being in a place where you can literally touch evil. You walk on the tracks leading into Auschwitz. There are the tracks, the original tracks. By, by the way, by Treblinka, they got rid of the whole place, I told you. They even got rid of the tracks. They have tracks there now, but they're more artistic, like as a monument, the tracks. These are the actual tracks into Auschwitz, the actual tracks. And, and, and someone said to me, I, I, I walked, I walked on, on the tracks. And I just, like someone said, that must have been surreal. And I, I said, it was surreal because it was the sense of walking on burning hot coals, but that were at room temperature. And a lot of Auschwitz is burned down, but they, they had to go really fast. And, but the houses were sort of like the barracks were made partly of wood and partly of brick. So you see there's whole rows of places where the wood part is burned down, but all the bricks are still in place. And then you have other places where, where things are very much still in place. You had uh, another part of Auschwitz, which they've turned into a museum, which in itself is like, you know, you have different reactions to, but I guess on a practical level, they just want to shield it, I guess, from the people touching it or taking the stuff. And that you can't, you can't go into Auschwitz with a, any bag, because they, everyone is was taking things. Everyone wants a rock. Let me have a rock or a brick or something like that, and it's all going to be gone. And and one of these sort of more bizarre—I don't want to say lighter notes, but just actually, it's nice when you think about it, but it will sound kind of bizarre when I tell you. They had just this, um, this electronic sign going into Auschwitz, like when you were about to enter it. And, and it was like two rows of three icons with circles and slash marks. There were things that you couldn't bring in, right? So one of them was like a, a boombox, like music. You can't, can't bring that in. 
um, you know, like a liquor was like another thing you couldn't bring in. And then they had a bikini with a circle and a cross through it. Like no one can go in dressed in a bikini or a shirt. Or uh, next to that was a, uh, a man's torso with just pants but no shirt. So you, you can't go into Auschwitz in a bikini or shirtless. So again, respectful, nice. But it was just, I don't know, just everything about it was just at the same time just odd to just to just to see that. You know what I mean? Like, like a sign on a restaurant, walking into a restaurant or something like that. You know. Um, so. So yeah, I mean, it's the museum experience was seeing piles of shoes, piles of suitcases behind glass, big glass, um, you know, uh, sheets of glass, like, like in a museum, like in the Museum of Natural History or something like this. And one of the big rep- repositories of things, and I'll tell you what the sign outside the building that had this, which was um, in itself, the, the, the sign itself was sort of disturbing. It said, material evidence of crimes. In other words, the, the whole sign is written from the point of view to um, address the Holocaust denier. Do you know what I'm saying? Material evidence of... Evidence! The whole thing is evidence! The whole country is evidence! But one of the more... Two of the more shocking things within this, I mean, it's all shocking, but, but, but is um, piles of prosthetics... That was one of the collections. Prosthetic is a a wooden arm or a wooden leg. Piles of wooden legs that were taken from the people. And one of the things which was just kind of just like I just did a double take when I saw it was most of the legs were wooden and, you know. But there was one lady's prosthetic, a a woman's leg, and it was flesh-colored, not wooden, and it had a red shoe on the bottom. And, you know, another thing was they had, they called it pottery, or the tour guide called it pottery anyway. And this was the biggest collection because they, t- they weren't telling people that they were taking them to the place of their death. They told them, just pack your bags, you know, you're going to be relocated or whatever lie they told them. I mean, you had Nazi guards with PhDs giving children sugar cubes to walk into the gas chamber if they walked the wrong way, just to get them to go into the gas chamber. Um, So people packed dishes. And, you know, all the shoes have become faded and they don't have their original color anymore. They all just look kind of like mud brown at this point. And the prosthetics all look splintery, old, wooden, and everything like that. But then you walk and you see the plates. And they're colorful plates from people's kitchens. And it's a view that you don't get of the Holocaust. Because everything is just relics. And here you saw you were looking inside people's kitchens. And they had this massive dump of, of, of plates and pottery. And you saw the life, you saw it, you saw it in the color, and all gone.
Um, I mean, there's more to say. I'll I'll just kind of maybe just throw in a couple more things. I told you that we we had someone playing the guitar at different places, at at all the places. Every time we stopped, we'd sing and you know something appropriate, and and sometimes we'd sing Am Yisrael Chai. Before we went into Auschwitz, um, we sang Am Yisrael Chai, which is you know the people of Israel will live, and the boys were all sort of arm in arm with the dads as well, and we were jumping and singing, you know. And very fervently, before walking into Auschwitz, you know, that's a place of death, and here we are, we're alive. And while everyone was jumping, I sort of kind of flashed on something, and so I'll just share that with you. Um, one, one of the things that we say in Shemona Esrei, in the, in the prayers, we say it three times a day. Um, it's in the section of uh, Etzemach David, and it's talking about how basically the, the, the dynasty of King David, we know that the Mashiach, the Messiah, is going to come, it's going to be a descendant of King David and come from that line. Um, it says, the offspring, meaning the children of your servant David, King, King, King David, may you speedily cause to flourish. Right? And, and the, the, the word for flourish um, is actually uh, sprout. Like, like, like um, a sprouting, like from the ground. Um, you plant a seed and it sprouts. What, one of the things um, that Judaism believes in is, uh, uh, we call it techias amesim, which means we're talking about the mass resurrection of the dead, of the righteous. This is going to be the next stage of humanity, basically. This is when our bodies and souls are going to be in perfect sync with each other. Um, and again, you should know that I always like to emphasize whenever I say this idea that this is Judaism 101. This is not some mystical belief. This is a basic tenet of Judaism that this is going to happen. And the Talmud addresses those people who have maybe trouble understanding this idea of resurrection of the dead. Like, is, you know, is this such a thing? Could this such a thing happen? And so the Talmud says that, you know, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. And they give different examples. And they say, you know, when you plant a seed, what happens when you plant a seed? It goes underground, like when you bury a body, right? And then this, the outside of the seed rots, right? So to speak, like the body decomposes. And then new life comes. <laughs> and it comes through the ground and it sprouts, and they say, this, you know, if you think of blades of grass, how many blades of grass go from seeds to shooting out of the ground all over the world? Maybe billions or billions of times a day? Tachias emesim is, is on some level happening around us all of the time. So when the boys were jumping up and down and saying, Am Yisrael Chai, I saw it like, I saw the, the, the sprouting. I saw the sprouting, like the techias amazing, right? The Jewish people jumping from underneath, being buried from underneath, to jumping and becoming life again in this world. And I heard Reb Shlomo say that, that it was the prayers of the six million 
that, that brought us to, to Israel. You have to understand that for close to 2,000 years, we're outside the land of Israel. All of a sudden, a Holocaust happens, and the next thing you know, there's a Jewish state. How did that happen? How did that happen? Okay, so you could write books about the UN votes and all the politics and everything like that, but you know what? It's still not going to explain how it happened. How did it happen? You know how it happened? Because of all of the shouts of all of the people, all the Shema Yisraels in the gas chambers, broke through all the prayers for Mashiach, broke down every single wall stopping the Jewish people going back to the land of Israel. And I'm telling you, those walls are still smashing until Mashiach comes. Mm. 